We're back on Date with the Night, and today I'm joined by two very legendary rock stars who have just released their sixth album, God Games, featuring the singles New York, LA Hex, and 103. It is with great excitement that I'm introducing to you today Jamie, aka Hotel, and Allison, <laughs> aka Vivi of The Kills. Hello. How are you today? We are well. How are you? I'm so good. I've been so excited about your new album since you announced it back in August. We've been excited about it since last November when we finished it. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I kind of wanted to start off at your beginnings as a band before we dive into the new album because it's a bit of a departure from Keep You On Your Mean Side and even No Wow. So You obviously always have your essence that makes every album the kills, but with every successive album, you experiment and transform your sound, and it's something I've always really admired about you both. And you met playing music in a squat. Is this correct? I lived in squats since I left home at 17, so that was my way of living and making music. And when I met Alison, yeah, we'd squatted a house that the local council had approached us and allowed us to form a housing co-op. So we were kind of legit then, but still officially homeless. (laughs) I met Alison in that sort of squat slash housing co-op. Yeah, I was over there in my first band discount playing shows. And that's how I met Jamie. One of his roommates booked the tour that I was on and the other roommate drove the van that I rode in. I was staying downstairs sleeping on the floor and I heard this incredible electric guitar being played upstairs and it was the most insane sound I'd ever heard. You're welcome. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for keeping me up, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest is history, guys. What were your first impressions upon having your first conversation? Well, it wasn't a conversation. I wouldn't really describe it as a conversation (laughs) because I knew that this band were coming to stay downstairs Everyone was really excited. They were kind of teenagers in a kind of hardcore band from Florida. I was a bit more nonchalant about it. (laughs) But I saw them in the garden. It looked like kind of three ordinary guys and a very, very not ordinary girl. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There was just this kind of vibe from everybody that, you know, you've got to meet Alison. And then we met. And she just kind of went bright red and couldn't speak to me. And I knew, I didn't really know why, what the vibe was, but I could tell in some way she was overwhelmed by me. And I didn't really know why or what that was about. I just thought he was very, very cool. <laughs> and then I saw her, her band play, which is not really my kind of music, but oh my God, it didn't matter. The performance was just incredible. I'd never seen somebody look so natural on stage and be so awkward off stage. You know, it was just, it was like, oh my God, you're meant to be a performer. It was incredible. She performed as if like there was no audience there. I don't think she looked at the audience once. They kind of were irritating to her, you know, (laughs) because she was doing her thing. And it's almost like she didn't want the sound of the audience to burst her fucking bubble that she was in on this out of body performance. And I remember saying to the, my friend next to me, I was like, Because at that time I was doing a solo project, which was kind of not going well. And I'd been dropped by my previous label in my previous band. And I said, look, if I do another project, then it's going to be with her. She's phenomenal. And then it happened. I've read before that when you met, you recorded your first few songs with beaten up guitars and a mic you found in the trash. Is that true? 
Yes, I used to go all through the trash. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, as an atheist, there's lots of things that challenge me, like things like this that, that make me feel like, is there a, such a thing as destiny? Yeah. Like literally two doors down on the opposite side of the street, there was a skip where I think somebody had died and they threw yeah. out all his stuff and he was like, he had a radio show. There was just a skip. What do you call that here? A dumpster? Yeah, dumpster. Yeah. yeah. And it was just full of cables and microphones and headphones. And we just needed these things. And it was like we'd been sent them. It sounds like yeah. we've romanticized this memory, but I swear we haven't. I mean, I needed everything because I didn't have anything there and no money. And I found the most perfect, it sounds disgusting, but perfect bed sheets folded up, brand new. I found everything I needed to live. This dumpster was really a godsend. We kind of bonded over this. We would be uh, rewiring headphones to make them into microphones. And we would just sit around and she would roll me cigarettes and I'd play her music and like, oh my God, have you got to listen to this? And I'd play her like the staple singers for 25 seconds and then Velvet Underground and Captain Beefheart. And like everybody that knows me knows how overexcited I get about music. I can't play something for more than 30 seconds without think thinking of something else to play. That was our sort of little social group, me and Alison in my apartment. I've read in interviews, we've talked about how the things that kept you going when you had no money were also just like buying a bottle of wine and like having yeah. this romantic notion of creating a scene. Yeah, that's why we named each other in this sort of stupid, facetious, ironic fashion. But it was like, you know, you got to remember where we lived. It was really like the sort of place where you're like, oh my God, if I'm living here in 10 years time and my life has gone wrong. <laughs> and so we created this little fantasy world where we would dress up in each other's clothes and go down the high street and just <laughs> feel brilliant. <laughs> and we had these sort of alter egos, a kind of alter egos. I mean, we'd named each other. It just, it was a funny time. It sounds silly now, but it was vital. It was very bonding. Yeah. We had each other. We had like all these wild ideas and we had no money. And we just, we all we did was sit around and laugh and just make stuff. It was so much fun. It was a time when there was, you know, we were not overwhelmed and bombarded by content and information where you can just, at the click of a mouse, you can find out everything about a person. There was a lot of sort of mystery about things. And those were things that we were really drawn to and we loved. The first EP we did, we wanted to drop this thing and people, we wanted people to not know whether it was an old band that had been like someone had found the tape of an old band that didn't exist anymore from the 60s or something. We wanted it to be like that. We wanted to confuse people and we didn't want to be present. We wanted it to sort of be a mystery. Your friendship has always been something I've admired because you can tell that you both have such a passion for music and you're doing it because you love music and then you also just have great mutual respect and admiration for each other. But I'm curious to know, like, what was that defining moment where you realized we're kindred spirits? Well, I wasn't sure at the time. What I knew that Alison had said that she really, you know, wanted to start a band and she would be prepared to move to London to do it. That was all great and very flattering. And But it was very gradual before I really, it really sort of struck me that, oh, my God, Nobody has ever had this much faith in me. You know, it was kind of quite yeah. daunting. I wouldn't want to say that there was this instant kind of, oh, my God. But we kind of forced it, didn't we? We kind of said, like, we're going to do this. We'd kind of basically been in bands before where the bands have been made up of our friends. We basically made music because it was a pastime and a hangout with our friends. 
And that, those were both had kind of worked, but they'd both kind of come to an end. So we didn't really have faith in that anymore. But what we did have faith in was having a flag that was like this goal and this aim and this mission statement and this belief. And the 20 years we've been together has been like us becoming friends through that. I mean, I have to say, like, I knew it like the second I met Jamie, which is probably why I went bright red. <laughs> he just, to me, immediately symbolized all the things that I really, really wanted to do. I just felt so excited about art and life. And it's also fascinating that both of you had this sort of punk DIY ethos because like some people might not have the go out and get them to continue to strive for certain things. Like I've read, Allison, that you were mailing letters to venues asking them to play. And sometimes you'd show up in a place and you didn't know whether you'd be playing or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it all seemed to make sense to me at the time. We had made this demo in Jamie's room and it was like five or six songs on. We burned these CDs and made artwork and stuff. And I just thought we need to send them the music and tell them that we want to play there and see what they say. And you know, we booked a three-month tour that way, basically through the mail. It was amazing. Like We would get replies because a lot of this stuff was kind of relationships that Alison had made through her band Discount. Everyone where Discount played could see that Alison was a star, I think. And they were really quick to say yes to shows. We didn't have a name. Like, Alison would write that in the, we don't have a name yet. But it didn't <laughs> matter. I can't imagine that happening now. You know, they were just like... Just let us know when you've got a name so we can do the posters. Yeah. They were really into it. Sometimes I think, have I remembered this right? But that's exactly what happened. People had a lot of faith. It was really a beautiful thing. I mean, at the time, I was surprised. Every time we got a yes, I was just like, oh, my God, great. We get to go to Dallas or, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. But just felt so, so exciting. And that first tour was the most special thing I will probably ever experience in my life. It was just yeah. a true adventure from beginning to end. Yeah, it was just amazing. Like people would come up after shows and be like, wow, how long have you been together? And we would be like, this is our seventh show. Or like, and then it would be like, this is our ninth show. And then by the end, when we got to LA, it was like we kind of we were in double figures of how many shows we'd done. And there was, <laughs> there was like triple figures of audience. And it was like, what the hell is happening? You know, it was absolutely bizarre to us. Yeah, I found some early footage on YouTube from, I think, the end of 2002 and early 2003. And you can tell the chemistry that you have as musicians and the performance is just unreal. So pretty much any venue at that time must have been really excited from what they heard. Yeah, but I would love that. What you mentioned about the punk ethic and the DIY ethic and all those things that we loved, like Fugazi and Nation of Ulysses and Bikini Kill. It's such a good sort of audition for this world, you know, of music to be into those bands. Because there's so many shows where you play house shows where you just cannot hear anything. Yeah, it's just nothing. all guitar <laughs> for, you know, 45 minutes. You're singing your heart out and you cannot hear a word you're singing. Nor could anyone else. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you don't have a tantrum. It's part of it. It's like this is yeah. what we grew up on. It just makes it so different. I mean, I can imagine people just... Now, like having those sort of experiences and just thinking, fuck this. <laughs> hey, but if the group has a lot of energy on the stage and there's something magical there, I think even when you can't necessarily hear it, so the sound is blown out, you still are just kind of high off a of vibe, I guess. Yeah, you get swept away in the whole thing. It's still awesome. Yeah. I've seen you mention before, I think, Jamie, in some interviews that you were also influenced by that 70s punk more kind of the whole aesthetic and vibe of it than the actual music. 
you know, that's what really got me was that there was a scene like that, something so vital and impactful that was not hugely popular. The reality of some of those shows was there was 150 people there, less sometimes, but the impact of it was astounding. And that always carried me. We were always a little bit sort of anti-populist, anti-popular. We weren't ever making music to get fans. It was more like we were making music to have an impact. That was our little sort of mission. Yeah, I've even read about your admiration for like scenes of Studio 54 and Edie Sedgwick and like a kind of Andy Warhol era. Yeah. It's interesting though now because there's so many people that look at the kills and your music as the best of the 2000s. And with people looking back on the 2000s, even the year 2003, when you released Keep On Your Mean Side, that's the same year that all these other great albums by The White Stripes, yeah. The Strokes, yeah. Kings of Leon, yeah, yeah. It's like, what an incredible year for rock music. Yeah, that was a wonderful feeling when it was like it was. sort of 99 to 2001. All the record companies have been so burnt by being so pompous and overblown and giving all these huge advances to bands that went absolutely nowhere. And they struggled. And for a long time, the only things they were signing were these kind of singer, songwriter, stadium acts, very, very kind of family friendly. And then hearing the strokes and the white stripes on the radio and the yeah, yeahs was like, oh my God, this is what we're doing. So exciting. It was like absolutely fantastic. What do you think it is about the music you were making during this time and that of your contemporaries that cultivated this scene where everyone was excited and people were looking to go to a show and have a good time and, you know, lose your shit to the music. It's difficult to describe it or explain it without oversimplifying it, but it felt like uh, there was definitely a sort of I don't care attitude and there was a sort of like, you've got to come to us, we're not coming to you. And that kind of sounds awfully arrogant, but it wasn't like that. It was like, if you wanted to make the music that you loved, you had to make a decision that you were kind of dropping out. You were going to be out of the mainstream. You were not going to be recognized. And yeah. if you had that attitude, it made you so strong, <laughs> you know, yeah. that you weren't caring about people coming to you. We would be doing this if there was 20 people coming to shows, I promise you. You know, I think everybody was just like so wrung out dry by the music industry, the overproduced stadium bands. Yeah. The state of it all, you know, it's like we can all remember how we felt when Nirvana came. It was like, oh, my God, thank God. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it was like that. It was just a rebellion against what was going on. And that's always the best thing when that happens in such full force like that. And you get such a handful of great bands. It was so anti what was happening in the mainstream, even yeah. acts like Beck. Yeah. I remember hearing him when he was on K Records, like doing like out of tune Lead Belly covers. And it was just astounding, you know. Yeah. It was like, yeah. yes, yes, yes. This is what I'm doing in my bedroom. You know, it just <laughs> felt, felt so wonderful. I've read also, Alison, that like you stopped listening to the radio because you were like, I'm not hearing anything. No, no. Yeah. I didn't listen to the radio for years, which is totally different. When I was a kid, I used to listen to the radio 24 hours a day. I don't think I ever slept. And then I developed actual music taste. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a thing like when, when you lived at home, there was a radio. So, yeah. you know, you kind of, you were drawn into the mainstream popular pop music. And every now and again, you'd come across the odd, like, you know, John Peel thing. 
But uh, when he left home, we didn't even have a radio. You know, you only had a radio in your car, and God forbid, it was like years away from being able to afford a car. So it wasn't even part and parcel for us. It wasn't, you know, the radio didn't even come into it. No, but eventually the radio kind of came to your scene that you had because that music, I was starting to hear it on the radio and that was yeah. exciting. When you noticed the shift sort of happening, what did you think? Did you all feel like empowered that you were changing the music industry in a way? I felt like other people in the world felt like us. You know, it yeah. takes a long time to catch up, but it's like, yeah, other people wanted to hear that too really, really badly. That's when it starts being played on the radio, I think. Yeah. We were kind of getting ready. We're, we were like writing songs and feeling really excited. And I think we'd done one or two shows. And we had a friend who worked at Rough Trade Records and we were playing him stuff that we were doing. It was just so out of step with anything that was happening. And then I remember him coming to me with a Yeah, Yeah, Yeah single. And he's just like, oh my God, you've got to hear this. This is like what you're doing. And he played it and we just felt like there was this sort of psychic collective universal consciousness going on you know like, yeah wow you know it was it was time you know yeah let's get into your new album god games because there is a lot i would love to ask you about i wanted to start off with one of your singles 103 103 really piqued my interest because i remember reading somewhere about the number 103 at the chelsea hotel when you signed with rough trade actually that's really interesting 103 it had nothing to do with 103 our song oh okay <laughs> when we signed to rough trade there was so much going on and we kind of didn't really have much of a respect for the music business only for the music and when we met rough trade we were kind of excited because of the history of rough trade and it was rough trade in America and they didn't have any offices. They were just starting out in America. Obviously, they were a big deal in the UK. And we said, well, we'll only sign to you if you um, move your offices to the Chelsea Hotel. Yeah. To our surprise, they did it and they moved into room 103 at the Chelsea Hotel. I'd never made that connection between the room number and the, the song 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, I thought there was some connection there. There is now. Yeah, there is now. But yeah, it's such a great track. And I wanted to ask you about the music video as well. The music video shot by Steven Sebring in his 3D film studio in New York City is one of my most favorite videos, probably of 2023. How did the concept for this music video come together? Well, we just like this kind of experimental camera work that Steven has been working on. I mean, he's built, it's a camera that's so big, you get inside of it. You know, it shoots you like, I don't know how many frames a second, but it's pretty crazy and my brain can't understand it. It's basically making holograms is what yeah. it's doing. And then you can manipulate the holograms 360 degrees or like in all directions, top to bottom, left wow. to right, all the way around. It makes more sense doing it than it does explaining it. Yeah. It's kind of like turning photographs into holograms. We really respect Stephen as an artist and it was very cool, this technology that he's been working with. And it just seemed like the right song to try to make a video in that fashion. So there was not really conceptually anything. We kind of got inside this camera and did our thing. And then this beautiful thing happened. Yeah. Things turn out good when you, you know, there's an artist that you love that you want to work with and you kind of let everybody be free to create. We'd met him quite early on before we made any of the videos and it just felt like we really wanted to do something with him, but it felt like New York and LA Hex, for me, just didn't seem like the right songs to do it with. Yeah. For some reason, 103 was just like, let's make some kind of, high art 
screensaver kind of video game kind of aesthetic, you know, it just seemed right for that song. Something that really stood out to me across this whole album was the character of all the production and the effects themselves. There's this thing in LA Hex where it's like, there's this echo on the snare, which is on the brink of like falling apart rhythmically, but it still locks you in. And there's this like splashy filtered echo on 103 or even like the saturation on the drums on Waster Piece. These effects have so much character that it leads me to believe you might have used a lot of outboard gear. No, I mean, Waster Piece was this, I mean, I wish I could show you a picture of it. It looks like a toy keyboard. It's called an Octagon. It was uh, made by Mattel in the 60s. They were trying to make a sort of all-encompassing rhythm music machine. And no musical instrument company would manufacture it, so they had to go to Mattel, a toy company, to make it. So it kind of looks like a toy, but it's crazy. It takes these kind of 12-inch flexi-discs, and it's these discs that have all these different drum beats, and you use all these different buttons on it. It's very advanced. Yeah. And it has this quirky, weird sort of toy-like saturated drum sound, and that's where that came from. There was not really, I mean, I'm sure I've, processed it through something but it's basically the sound of it that's the texture of it we both had this kind of vision for how this should sound that we were both really excited about making the rhythms really kind of digital and chopped up and kind of like a lot of these programmers or whatever that i love rhythm producers like mf doom and kanye and all that kind of chopped and screwed stuff that's really syrupy and chopped up And we really wanted to make the rhythm track, this kind of like foundation of rhythm, be really futuristic and digital. And then the performances over the top, Alison's voice and my guitar to be really super raw and live. And I liked that sort of contrast between the two things. Yeah, God Games, the drums have the like perfect swing stutters. There's also this like J Dilla MPC feel to them. Well, I use an MPC. Yeah, it's got a beautiful swing to it, the MPC. I love those kind of awkward rhythms, like that song on Anti by Rihanna, that album, the first song, Consideration, that kind of really weird, awkward, lurchy, kind of slightly out of time drum loop. I love that stuff. It's kind of like robots trying to have a human feel. Yeah. (laughs) That keyboard you're referring to, is that the like $100 keyboard that... No, no. The $100 keyboard's like a little Akai and it's modern. The one I'm talking about, the Optagon, I paid $19.99 for. So that one's cheaper. even cheaper. (laughs) You're really thrifty. We are. Yeah, we are. (laughs) See, that's the old DIY background. (laughs) Yeah. I was reading an enemy that you guys had mentioned there was like no fussing, like you were getting these great takes on everything and it felt good and exciting and it reminded you of making your first record. Do you think that keyboard that, Allison, you were creating music on that you didn't know how to play at first, is that part of what made it feel like making your first record in a way too, because it was like a different avenue for writing and composition? Well, I just don't know how to play piano and it is essentially a piano, you know, I mean, it's a keyboard. I don't know how to play it properly, but that doesn't stop me from playing it all day long. I mean, it's really, really fun, but you can plug it into your computer and get a bass sound or a grand piano or whatever, you know, it's just a MIDI keyboard, but it's a very freeing thing. And I think it's really exciting when you don't particularly know how to play something or the rules to the instrument or anything like that, Yeah, the kind of results you get because it's very honest. Yeah. It's always like when you're restricted by your ability 
for us, it always seems like the ideas kind of fill the vacuum created by your lack of ability. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems like the more familiar and the more virtuous you are with an instrument, the less the ideas flow a little bit. Yeah, there was that. And there was just that, you know, it had been a while since we made our last record and we had started and then there'd been a pandemic and then, you know, all these kind of starts and stops. And I think after going through all of that, those couple of years of just kind of chaos anxiety, it felt like being a kid again to get to go into a studio. There was no moment of just like, whatever, we've done this before. Nothing. It was the most exciting thing. And I think when you have that kind of spirit about what you're working on, yeah, it felt triumphant, you know? There was a brilliant thing that happened in the pandemic when you sort of discovered the road was so open and there were no deadlines and time was just ticking on. And there was not even um, an idea about when you were going to release your record, but an idea about when the world might be back to normal. You know, it just yeah. seemed like it could go on forever. And there's a moment there where you just feel like, oh, my God, you know, you can make whatever you want and you can create whatever you want. And it becomes this sort of really fantastic kind of creative moment. You know, one of the brilliant things was just during that time, I think our standard, because we were getting so little feedback from anybody because everyone was so alienated and isolated that our standard, we just kept raising the bar more and more and more and more and more and saying this has got, you know, that was one thing that I see during that period of time was just that I wanted to get so much better. I wanted our ambition to be so much higher and so much further. And, you know, I'm not saying we achieved it, but... You did. Having that on your flag (laughs) while you're marching into battle is a pretty good one, you know? Yeah. You started creating the album and were working on it in 2019, right? So just before the pandemic started. And then, yeah, a couple months before. <laughs> and then you're like, wow, okay. Okay, we cool. A- <laughs> well, this is a twist. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can see why we called it God Games because it seemed like somebody was fucking with us. <laughs> I found with this album, God Games, that the standout feature that really left an impression on me was the space that you defined. Because I read that this was recorded in an old church which you can definitely hear and feel. How did you decide on this church and like how and why did this space speak to you? Well, it wasn't really about the space. In fact, we just decided that we wanted to work with Paul Upworth at the end of the record to kind of finish the record. Mm -hmm. And he happens to have his studio in a place called The Church, which is a very famous studio in London. So there was kind of absolutely no connection to it. Oh, so it's not, it's not a church. It's just a It family. is a church. No, it is a church. It is a oh, church. Oh, okay, good. That's what it's I thought. It's an old church. It used to belong to Dave Stewart from the Arrhythmics. So there's a lot of wonderful history there. You know, mm-hmm. the Travelling yeah. Wilburys would have recorded there, which means that Bob Dylan and Roy Bucking Orbison recorded there and Tom Petty, you know, it's yeah. like quite a sort of magical history there. But honestly, we didn't really think about any of that until we started doing interviews. (laughs) Yeah, and it all starts to be falling into place. (laughs) The play with depth was amazing. Like on better days, there's an interesting balance between like foreground and background elements that gives off the same kind of grandeur of an orchestra. Oh, I always kind of go shy. I'm weird when people talk about better days because I've had so many like people say really in-depth, complimentary things about it. And it was kind of, to me, it started off as a silly song that I didn't think would make the record. And now it's kind of one of my favorites. because Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's one of my favorites too. I guess it's a happy accident that there is that sort of element of 
like God Games, the song, there's, there's elements of things being really digital and upfront, mm-hmm. but then there's all this kind of really lazy, raw, kind of unhinged performances in the background. Yeah. Even on a track like Kingdom Come and Get It, I honestly can't recall like hearing a track in recent years that made me feel like I'm sitting behind the kit as much as this one. (laughs) There's this like immediate intimacy with the drums, like specifically the hi-hats. Yeah, that's another one of my sound aesthetics. I just, I love, (laughs) people are like, fucking hell, man, the drums are loud. I'm like, yep. No, but it sounds really cool. Like it's (laughs) talking about even drums and percussion on this album. Like everything has a very big sound. It kind of reminded me like somewhat like, John Bonham recording in a stairwell like feeling yeah. creating this sort of cacophony of sound like was that something you really wanted to play with prior to embarking on the album I mean there's not really a sense where we make a list of what we want to do before no. we start a record but there's definitely a sense of making sense of the things you've done after you've done them and there were a couple of moments like LA Hex definitely talking about the cacophony I was standing on a street corner in LA waiting to get home at 2 a.m. and hearing all these cars passing with different music going on. You know, like there'd be some sort of trap song coming with all this sub bass and then the other direction, there'd be a mariachi band or a blast of rock and roll or some gospel or something. And it was just so musical to me that I thought like, oh, I really want to make a track like that. I don't know how it's going to sound, but... They want yeah. to make a track that has all these elements. Yeah. And that was probably the only one where it was a sort of academic thought, you know, that I heard something, I was inspired by something, and I went home and tried to recreate it, you know. Yeah. But most of the time, it's just a sort of free fall of creativity, and then you kind of try to make sense of why you did it afterwards. Yeah. There's just so much of these little things on the album, like that go on the snare in LA Hex. I love that too. Like there's all these little. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you said that. (laughs) I'm kind of wondering too, what was the inspiration behind the album cover? It's a painting that's been sitting on Jamie's mantelpiece for six years. Wow. That he's been staring at. But I think during the pandemic, especially, he looked at it extra. I always thought it was a stupid picture. Like someone left it as a gift when I moved into my house. And it was like they put it on my mantelpiece and I was just like, well, I'm getting rid of that. And I didn't get rid of it. All that lockdown time, it was like right in my vision in front of me on my sofa while I was writing stuff. And it just kind of became this catalyst for ideas and memories and philosophy. And sometimes it was really profound, like the conflict between nature and culture and how humans destroy everything, but they have to dress it up in some kind of tradition or ritual or fashion, even like little embroidered outfits for the matador. And I would sit and think about those things. Some days I would just sit and think about it as being like a kind of bad painting, like with a sort of wannabe artist struggling to get the shading right on the bull's horns or something like that, you know? It just became more and more the visual representation of the... Well, it started off being the absolute visual representation of the song God Games. And then when we decided to call the album God Games, it became the visual representation of the album. My dad is Spanish, and one thing my mom always said is like, the Spaniards are have like a almost weird obsession with death. Right. And how that is like a celebrated thing too. So I mean, I think there's certain instances where it's brutally obvious. 
like in bullfighting where it's obviously wrong and obviously cruel. It's kind of almost the reason why it's so obvious is that it's depicted in such a simple way. The brutality yeah. is unavoidable. But I think we're obsessed with it in everything. Cinema is absolutely obsessed with murder yeah. and war and tragedy. It stands the reason that the recorded artists would be consumed by it as well. Were you listening to any Spanish-inspired music? I mean, I've honestly always loved it. It's accidentally the way I play guitar is a little bit flamenco. Yeah. You know, I don't really play with a pick very much. And at the very start of the band, we were trying to work out how the hell we could have rhythm with just me playing guitar and Alison singing. Like, how are we going to do this? Yeah. One of my ideas, stupidly or cleverly, well, we never did it, so probably cleverly, was I wanted to have a flamenco dancer on a wooden block that was mic'd up and she would be like banging out all these rhythms with her heels. Yeah. And then we would play to that. I don't know really where it came from, but I just always loved that. I think it's because it's so purely guitar and rhythm. I mean, I'm always drawn to things like that. Rosalia quite recently did a track Malamante and it was like, oh, I was so fucking jealous of that. Like, just yeah. like hand clapping, simple, 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 just done in this brilliantly futuristic way. And I thought, oh, I wish we'd done that. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to touch on one of your singles, New York. I know you're huge fans of the city, and I'm just wondering what was the thinking behind that? Well, New York is one of my favorite cities in the world, and it's just always got this kind of magic trick with me where when I go there and spend some time, I get super inspired. It's like I just get all filled up. Yeah. Every time I leave, I'll write a book or I'll write a song or I'll paint a painting or something. I'm exploding to work. Yeah. And so it's always had that effect on me, which I'm so thankful for. It's part of the reason that I'm worried if I ever live there, I might ruin it. The pandemic happens and I'm watching New York the entire time. I'm basically just glued to the news for a year. And it was the summer of 2021. I finally went back to New York and... It was the most incredible feeling. I can't even describe it. I mean, watching that city, just everything that happened there and then being able to go back and walk down the streets and see friends and stuff. It was just the most amazing feeling. The song is a love song to a person, but the song is a love song to the city ultimately. Just that no matter what, every time you go to New York, your life changes somehow for the better, I think. Yeah. Something great happens. Some new idea comes to you that changes your path or gives you a gift in some way. And so I came back from New York. I flew back to L.A. and I sat down and wrote that song. A lot of these things as well, you kind of write things and then you have a working title. Oh, that's the New York song. Yeah, it just stayed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I considered, like, suggesting calling it something different just because it's about a lot more than New York. And New York did, to me, for a little while, seem like a working title. But then it grows into the title and that you can't see the song as anything else. There's a yeah. few things like that. I think it's a great title. I mean, you can't crush New York's spirit. They're very resilient. Seriously, so. you cannot. We were desperate to be on, on that Wikipedia page, Songs About New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an amazing song. It's a great way to start off the album, too. I kind of wanted to move on just a little bit into it's kind of connected to your new album as well. But like I saw the film Titan for Halloween back in 2021 during the pandemic. Uh -huh. I really love that opening scene that utilizes your song Doing It to Death off the album Fire and Ice, which is also another Ash and Ice. album. 
Ashenite, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I say fire and ice as well. I think I have a Game of Thrones on the brain or something right now. <laughs> um, sorry about that. <laughs> I was wondering what you thought when you watched that scene in the film or like how your approach to incorporate that song. It was kind of weird because we got sent a very early version of the scene that didn't really end up looking like that, but we were so proud to be part of it. We obviously agreed to do it. Yeah. And then, to be honest, we were so busy, we forgot about it. And then my next thing was I started getting all these texts about, like, congratulations, you won a Palm Door. And I was like, what? And then I looked at it, and it was like, fucking hell, man. Really one of my proudest moments. <laughs> what a brilliant scene. It's all like one take, you know, no edits in that for the first sort of, like, three and a half, four minutes. I just think that's wonderful. Yeah, so, cool. It's kind of like our aesthetic. It's like totally. we rarely record something where we're like, oh, drop me in on that second verse. It's always like, no, do it again <laughs> yeah. until we get a full take. So it's really fantastic to have that song be part of something that's like a three and a half minute one shot. Yeah, the grit and grime and like the leather jackets and just everything about that scene. It was like, it was meant Great to be. Film. Yeah. Very proud of that, yeah. Very, very good film. Much more so than uh, having Sour Cherry in House Bunny. <laughs> What's funny is I like that movie. <laughs> you do? I haven't seen it. I do. I don't mind it I think it has some charm to it. It's. I like it now, but I was shocked when I, I, I was <laughs> kind of funny i watched it on an airplane i had no idea then our song came on and as soon as we fucking landed i was on the phone to my manager what the hell like i'm not so pompous now i kind of <laughs> i understand it but uh, at the time i was like we did not agree to that <laughs> anna ferris is hilarious in it so I, I i enjoy that film i really do yeah <laughs> One of my probably all-time favorite films, top 10 at least, is uh, Children of Men and you, your oh, song, Wait. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's always in the most underrated films of all time. It is. I think it is. Fucking brilliant, that film. Yeah. Even the futuristic kind of stuff, it's like not over the top or super like cliche. It's yeah. like very subtle. Yeah. yeah, Your song, Wait, is used in arguably one of the best scenes in the film, but the most heartbreaking oh, scenes in the yeah, film. yeah. And, you know, you've had other songs and, like, shows that are pretty big during this time for people to discover music, like... Yeah, Peaky Blinders. Yeah, Peaky Blinders, but also shows like Gossip Girl was pretty little liars. Gossip like, Girl, Those yeah. were shows where people loved the soundtrack and, like, all the musical choices, like... For some people, that was an introduction to you guys as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Allison, you had this incredible Beatles cover for uh, Sucker Punch, Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, yeah. Visually, it's a very stunning film. I think it's a bit underrated. It's very cool. If you could have a song off the new album used in like one director's film, who would it be and why and what song might that be? Oh, man. There's so many dreams like that. First of all, I just feel lucky because we've had so many songs in movies and television, and I'm so proud of that because it means we write really cinematic music. But a dream, I mean, I'd like to be in a Jim Jarmusch film. Ah, uh, that's what I was going to say, yeah. yeah. I mean, that Titan thing just blew my mind. You could not pick a more perfect film. It's like that film was made for me. Yeah. So it's a very proud moment, and I hope more of those things happen. It's really cool. We'll manifest it. Yeah, yeah. Jim Jarmusch, if you're listening, get the kills. One of their new songs, their new <laughs> film. Before you go, I just have like two questions to wrap up with you here. Like you're both style icons, let's be real. Like honestly inspired my fashion. God, you don't want to see what I'm wearing now. Oh, I'm sure it's great, <laughs> whatever it is. Even in 2011, Alexa Chung listed you, Allison, as like a style idol. And 
you've been such a huge inspiration for a lot of people with your style and, and your music, obviously. But like, how did you both like cultivate your own style? There's this kind of like European style thing that I used to hate when I was a kid, you know, because there's certain things like you dress for lunch and yeah, you dress yeah. for dinner. As I got older, it became like, especially living in LA where everyone's all like shorts and baller caps. It's just like, it's almost more precious to me now, that kind of thing of like dressing up for things. Being a kid in Florida in a tiny town in Florida where there just seriously was not any <laughs> style. You're trying to find your people. You're trying to find your artist people. You know, you start to kind of basically decorate yourself yeah. to try to attract people that you want in your life, you know. And then there's the other side of it. It's like you work with what you have. And I think always it's like, didn't really ever have money for clothes. So it kind of came down to like finding really cool shit, you know, and thrift stores and stuff and sort of making and creating what you want it to look like. Yeah. That's what designers look at. It's like, yeah. what are kids making for themselves that they don't see and they can't buy? And, you know, next thing you know, it's like $5,000 at Gucci. And you're like, but yeah. that was my shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always did that thing of like intrinsically associating music and style. Like I would go to the record shop when I was a teenager mm -hmm. and buy records just on the strength of the art on the cover or the picture of the band, not knowing what the music sounded like at all. I became a master of it, like picking bands that looked good and then taking the record home and, oh my God, the record sounds good. I think of style like love and passion <laughs> and all those things, it's vital. Yeah. What's uh, something new that inspires you creatively right now, whether it be like with your fashion or your music or whatever? Like what's something new for the both of you? Well, I think for this record, I feel like I was watching a lot of films and I started seeing the advantage of filmmaking, how like a director, you never question whether a director's film is like about his life or not. Yeah. You allow film to be not linear and biographical you allow it to be fantasy and you allow it to move one minute from fantasy and a dreamscape into hyper reality and all these things that rock and roll music is often not really allowed to do i found that really inspirational for this record like thinking of things as like we don't have to do like verse chorus verse chorus bridge middle eight verse chorus but we can make these like films starting with a yeah. scene and then, and then move on to another scene Recording artists are always like, people like pour over your lyrics and like, what does this mean? Is this something, yeah. this must be something to do with when he was getting divorced or something like that. <laughs> it's like, no, I jump from memory to fantasy to all over the place. And I felt a sort of confidence when I sort of discovered that we could do that, you know? Yeah. For me, it's always like fine artists, painters, sculptors, films, books, just seeing everything that's going on. And I love artists like Richard Prince, who makes every kind of thing, you know, yeah. every single thing he does. I'm so excited. I feel so inspired. It just makes me want to paint or just make stuff. And there's such a kind of musical element to what he does. But yeah, it's different. It's just like whatever's going on. That's how I feel when I listen to your music that I always feel inspired to create or to just, you know, I think that's why I love music so much is just the fact that it gives you like hope and inspiration and just like makes you excited about life. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the pod. I've oh, what really pleasure. enjoyed talking Honestly, to you. God, what a pleasure talking to yeah. you. I really loved it. I've been so excited to talk to you both. And honestly, this record is phenomenal and I can't wait for everyone to hear it. 
you guys always better yourselves each time. Every record is phenomenal. So thank you so much. For listeners, check out God Games available now on all streaming platforms and make sure to follow The Kills on Insta at The Kills if you haven't already. And for my listeners in London, The Kills will also play a very special Halloween album launch show at the Prism in Kingston, London. Correct? That's right? Correct. That's correct. Yep. That'll be a really great night, Halloween night. Special things always happen, so. Yep. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been so great talking to you. See you later. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. See you later. See you later.